This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm joined by Katie Balls and James Forsyth. Well, today, as expected, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has been setting out the law that the government plans to table on the Northern Ireland Protocol. It will allow the UK government to disregard parts of the protocol and include a number of different ways in which it will do that. Katie, can you just run us through the different elements of this proposed law? Yes, so we've known this is coming for some time. I think James was the first to reveal it in The Spectator. But ultimately, this was Liz Truss confirming a new law will be introduced to change the post-Brexit trade deal for Northern Ireland. Now, this has not been um, set out yet in a sense that it is going through the voting stages. It's more the uh, preliminary stages. And that means that in terms of retaliation from Brussels, what we're hearing is, you know, saying, oh, you shouldn't do this still run. Why have you done this? So, we're moving forward a bit, um, but we're not at the point where this has actually been activated yet. And I think you can see that from the fact that the DUP, who Boris Johnson, who was visiting Northern Ireland yesterday, was trying to incentivise to get back and form an executive at Stormont. They said, well, this goes some of the way, but, you know, the proof is in the pudding and we're not about to move on this until we see that you, you, know, you go further. Now, in terms of what the bill would do, it would propose green and red lanes for goods travelling between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. It would ensure goods moving and staying in the UK are freed of unnecessary bureaucracy if they're not destined for the EU. And this relates to um, all the stories we've heard in terms of how much paperwork you have to do for um, products going to Northern Ireland and how that is putting off uh, smaller businesses. And you had the head of Marks and Spencer's this morning saying... While they're, you know, they're still doing it, it creates um, lots more hurdles, which would put many off being there. Um, it will also allow businesses to choose between meeting UK or EU standards in a new dual regulatory regime. And it would give the UK government power to sign on tax and spend policies across the whole of the UK. Now, this is important because at the moment, if you were to do something relating to VAT, so for example, if you were to axe VAT on energy bills, the government would not be able to bring that into effect in Northern Ireland. It also says that, uh, the bill will address issues related to governance, bringing the protocol in line with international norms. Now, I think those are the top lines and also um, fed into that is removing regulatory barriers to goods made to UK standards being sold in Northern Ireland. The catch, well, clearly the EU has not agreed to this. And this is the UK saying, trying to say at least, we're not going as far as to do Article 16. We're not trying to junk the protocol. We're just trying to fix it. But... There is little sign that the EU want to go there. And I think no matter how softly the Prime Minister says that we're in a situation where if they do go in these further steps, we are already hearing about severe threats of retaliation. Yeah, I think one of the things that is interesting here is how much the UK government wants to stress that they see this as a kind of parallel track to the negotiations. And this is something that they have tried before, where they basically say, unless we get some concessions, we're prepared to act unilaterally, think back to the uh, internal market bill, until they feel that they have got enough to fold, essentially. What is difficult here, as Katie said, is this DUP question, because ultimately, if the test for the UK government is getting the Northern Ireland executive back up and running again, 
that is not in their hands. That is in the hands of a DUP, because the UK government could think it had got enough, but then the DUP could say, well, that's not enough for us. And I think you see some of this tension, which is, I think there are those in the UK government who had hoped that merely announcing the legislation would be enough to get the DUP to say, well, look, we're obviously waiting to see for, for it, whether it happens or not. But we will now start having more serious conversations about an executive in Northern Ireland because we can see progress. Instead, the DUP is saying, look, until this bill becomes a law, you know, that doesn't count for us because we feel that, you know, we've been made, had promises made to us in the past that haven't been honoured. And so you see the complexity here. I think the other two questions are this. What happens if the EU starts to retaliate in dramatic ways. Now, I mean, that is unlikely at the moment. It's unlikely because, as Katie said, this is kind of a long way off becoming law. It's also unlikely because of the the broader geopolitical situation. But, you know, there are things that the EU could do within the treaties which would make things very difficult. For example, if the EU at Calais decided it was going to stop prioritising flow and instead, you know, take a kind of fingernail-checking approach to every lorry arriving from the UK, that would have big knock-on consequences for the UK. And I think the other danger is that if we get into a situation where you have European figures regularly talking about, you know, possibly cancelling the entire TCA and the like, does that create a cloud of uncertainty over the UK economy at just a moment when the UK economy is trying to bring in more investment, saying essentially that, look, the uncertainty that was caused by Brexit and then Covid is now over? Now, moving on to the cost of living crisis, which is the other big issue that Boris Johnson is trying to tackle and indeed something that he's often accused of trying to distract from with uh, the machinations over the protocol. Katie, Labour have had an amendment to the Queen's speech, which they've been debating in the House of Commons this afternoon. Just explain what that's seeking to do. Now, this is looking for a windfall tax, which is something Labour have been calling on for some time. I think it's ultimately a situation where it's probably Labour's best-known policy in the sense that we've heard it frequently in all these broadcast interviews. They've been pushing it for some time. And today, using the Queen's speech debate to try and press for this, try and force a vote. Now, I think what's interesting is, on the Tory side, it feels the government has moved in its position on a windfall tax. We've gone from a situation where Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak repeatedly said that a windfall tax was a bad idea, it would put off investment, it sent the wrong uh, message to businesses, to one where I think in the face of record profits from lots of these companies, and also interviews with some of the heads saying, oh, you know, you could do a windfall tax and we'd still do all our plans. There is a sense in government that actually, if you if you are going to go down this route, well, why don't we just tax you? Now, the government is not there yet. The Scottish Conservatives, for example, have concerns over this. But it very much feels, and I think in Rishi Sunak's response today, that this is something which is now not off the table, and I think has it a decent chance of happening. In terms of Ed Miliband's point, I think that Twitter is very much enjoying Ed Miliband today, and suggesting that he is putting a lot of force in his arguments, and suggesting when it comes to the cost of living crisis, the government not doing enough. Edmund Bell is saying, you know, when it comes to low-income families, I would have no idea how I would cope in those circumstances with any member of this House. And I think that there is a sense on the Labour side that they are going to be vindicated on windfall tax because the political weather has turned in their favour. And now you have lots of Tory MPs who are really willing the government to do it, even though you could say, well, there's going to be egg on your face if after you've given all these interviews saying something shouldn't happen, it now happens. I think there's much more um, overriding that this, this sense that they need to look as though they're doing something on cost of living. And right now the government just looks like it is doing too little. 
I think one of the most remarkable slights of hand of recent political times is Labour and this windfall tax, because the, the, the windfall tax would raise, depending on, on how you want to calculate it, there's a 10% corporation tax surcharge on North Sea oil and gas produce between 1.3 and 2 billion. Now, that, that, that is not nothing, obviously, but you know the government has already spent £9 billion on, on trying to ease the, uh, the, the rise in energy bills. So Labour have done in remarkably clever politics here in, trying to, in using this windfall tax to create a dividing line and suggest that the kind of windfall tax could solve every problem. I thought it was very striking when Andrew Neil and to Jonathan Ashworth, you know, how expensive, how much more than £2 billion some of the measures that people talk about as, as, as being necessary to deal with this cost of living crisis, and they may well be, uh, but how much more expensive than £2 billion they are. Katie, finally, Ed Miliband trending on Twitter. James just mentioned John Ashworth uh, being interviewed as well. We've got Wes Streeting in health. You've written for the latest spectator about Keir Starmer's position. Uh, is his front bench getting stronger, do you think? Or do you think this is just a sort of Twitter moment? I think that what I found interesting, right, about the cover piece that you mentioned, which is, you know, if Keir Starmer had to resign over Beergate, what would follow? is that when you called around Tory MPs and Labour MPs, party figures, to say, well, who do you think in that scenario? Yes, we're talking hypothetical, but that's, you know, not that that put us off, could replace Keir Starmer. It felt to me, having done similar under Boris Johnson in the wake of Partygate, probably numerous times, that there are many more names coming to the surface. And I think that's partly because, obviously, replacing a Labour leader, if they're leader of the opposition, is a less complicated process than putting something in to be Prime Minister tomorrow. But it did also, I think, suggest to me that the front bench, the Labour front bench, is seen as a you know pretty talented in comparison to Keir Starmer. I think you obviously compare it to the leader, but I think there's lots of people look at Keir Starmer's traits and think some of his front bench are probably... Uh, more energetic media performers perhaps manage to emote more with um, voters and therefore I think if we did end up in a scenario where there's a Labour leadership contest it'd be quite a wide field and could be very interesting and potentially unpredictable. Though we should add that Ed Miliband has suggested that he would not run. What a shame. Well thank you Katie, thank you James and thank you for listening.